Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. I think I'll start off with uh, with uh, uh, Hal. Uh, 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 I think you had some uh, uh, information on, on what you had looked at in the Gulf as far as the occurrences there and whatnot that you wanted to uh, put a wrap up on this year. So let let's take it away, Hal. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. That was a really good overview of the of the season there. I'm going to try to maximize this window here. This will just take a second. Yeah, this was interesting. You know, over the past four years, we've had four hurricanes that have rapidly intensified more than 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. So starting with Hurricane Harvey in 2017, then we had Michael in 2018. And then this year, both Hannah and Laura intensified at least 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. And this is interesting. This has only happened nine times on record since 1950. And so we see it happened four times in the last four years. And if we look at the beginning of the data set, in the first 50 years of the data set, it only happened three times. So this happened about once every 17 years in the second half of the 1900s. In the last four years, it's happened four times. Is that just randomness? Is it just a cluster? Or is it possibly a trend? Well, you know, we, we do know that warm sea surface temperatures help intensify these storms. And something that I'm working on a project with some friends at East Tennessee State University, we're looking at trying to understand trends in the in the Gulf water temperatures, especially the Western Gulf. You know, we've seen three out of these four uh, storms were either in southwest Louisiana or on, along the Texas coast. Is there something in the western Gulf of Mexico waters where we're seeing a warming trend? Well, we don't have long-term temperature records out in the Gulf going back, say, you know, decades or, or even more than a century. But we do have some interesting data coming out of Galveston, the city where I live. So I'm joining you today from Galveston, Texas, where I live. And we have the longest continuous weather records west of the Mississippi River. 150 years of weather records. And what's really interesting, you can see the yellow star on the map is Galveston. And this is just looking at a weather map for September 1st. But you can see a a strong south wind there. We will get south or southeast winds sometimes for weeks in a row. In in the summertime, just the, um, the flow is usually coming off the Gulf. It's an onshore flow. We usually do not get cold fronts until maybe later September or October. And so we typically get this consistent onshore flow that's blowing over this pool of warm water right into Galveston. And so a study that I've been working on is looking at the number of hot nights per year. So we chose nights because you don't have the sun involved. And also, you know, you lose some of those daytime convective showers. And uh, this is the last slide I wanted to show you here. This just shows a trend in the counts of hot nights in Galveston since the year 1900. And so a hot night is defined as having an overnight temperature of 84 or above. It never happened in the first 27 years of the 1900s. Then we started getting, you know, a few hot nights from the 20s through, say, the 70s. In the 80s and 90s, we really started ramping up. And the the orange color there shows a nighttime temperature of 85. We had that happen for the first time in 1995. And then you can see, you know, that really ramps up in the 2000s, a lot of nights in the 84 and 85. But last season was the first time we ever had a nighttime temperature of 86 degrees. It happened three times. And this season was the first time we ever had an overnight temperature of 87. That happened four times. 
In fact, in the past two years, we've had nine nights where the overnight low was 86 or 87. It never happened on record until 2019. So we think the primary reason that's happening is a warmer Gulf water temperatures out there that can lead to this rapid intensification. Also puts more moisture in the air as well. Um, a, a study that I saw in Scientific American said every degree Celsius that you warm up the ocean water, that's about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, you get about 7% more moisture in the air. And, you know, hurricanes like to collect this moisture. So perhaps 10 to 15% more rainfall for every degree Celsius that you're warming up the water. So, you know, per- perhaps there is a trend there we're thinking in that the uh, rapid intensification is not just a random occurrence. But again, a lot of activity along the Gulf. Excited to hear what everyone has to share. But this is just some, some insights we had that we could be seeing some long-term trends in the area from warmer water, water, from warmer water in the Gulf of Mexico. That's, that's really, really interesting. The rainfall uh, aspects, uh, that, that, that's one of the things that folks at AM Galveston have tasked me to find for them. And, the, and it's kind of the same sort of thing. There's very few 30 uh, inch or greater rains uh, prior to the 1950s. Some of that's attributed to lack of density of observations, obviously. But then all of a sudden, we're getting 40 to 50 inches of rain out of these. At landfall, which would be consistent with what you found. One more insight is this is the sixth consecutive tropical season in which we've had a a landfalling hurricane or tropical storm either stall out or move very slowly. And this year, really, Sally, I think, was a good example of that, making landfall only moving about two miles an hour into Alabama. So just a really prolonged event. And this is six years in a row that we've had really stalled out systems dumping a lot of rain and prolonged storm surge as well. So that's another trend that we've been seeing along, especially along the Gulf Coast. Yeah, I don't, I'm not that familiar with the climatology of, of stalling storms further east. It's not that uncommon in Texas. There's pretty good documentation back into the 1800s of, of stalling in there, but I haven't looked at the ones further east, but it is, it's, it's pretty mind boggling because it exposes just how much property we have uh, that's somewhere between the hundred year flood event and whatever it is we're getting now. And it's more, more properties flooding outside of the nominal hundred year flood area than in the flood area. And it really speaks loudly that we we need to somehow figure out how to beat this uh, curve back of overdeveloping and flood-prone areas. Well, the, the stalling storms also create a communication challenge in that many people associate the category number with their risk. And so when, you know, often people hear that a storm has been downgraded to a tropical storm or downgraded from a category three to a category one, uh, sometimes it's hard to communicate. That's not going to matter when there's six feet of water in your home because it it rained 22 inches or something like that. So that's also another challenge we're finding in communicating risk. Yeah, yeah, I used to always bark about uh, people referring on, on the air, referring to it as just a tropical storm. And I pull out the glossary of meteorology and say, find the word just a in here. It's not there, you know. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, Rob, run to you next. I, I know you, you were under the gun all summer there. What you got to wrap this little uh, package up? 
Yeah, well, let me go ahead and uh, share my screen here and get uh, a couple of things that kind of drew my attention. Uh, First off, I don't know if you guys saw this article. It was published in uh, Science just the other day. Just looking at the front end of the hurricane season, kind of looking at the season in total. And obviously it was one heck of a season. But, um, you know, wavy jet stream produced the Godzilla dust storm. Um, earlier this year where Puerto Rico was shrouded. We saw the dust across the Gulf Coast, and I'm sure you guys saw it over in Southeast Texas as well, where we did have some very, very hazy days that I can't remember ever seeing. Uh, But interesting how uh, climate may be impacting the beginning of the season with those uh, dust storms in which we all know kind of choke out uh, tropical activity. But uh, obviously the other dynamics this year overwhelmed uh, the, uh, the, the dust, uh, uh, that we saw earlier this year. Um, the other thing I'll note, uh, just, uh, looking at the amount of activity, and this is just, uh, this is off of my Twitter feed here. Uh, the amount of storms that impacted the Gulf of Mexico, this is a graphic I produced and, you know, saving for the future and just the number of storms here in the Northwestern Gulf of Mexico. And, If you looked at the action, uh, especially as we got into the latter part, uh, got into October and November, uh, when you look at the Madden-Julian oscillation, which is a global wave, a Kelvin wave that travels around the world, um, it puts you in favorable or unfavorable conditions for tropical activity. And when we had some of the biggest storms and some of the most activity, we were not in a favorable phase. So one wonders if that we were in a favorable phase, whether we would have seen two or three more uh, major hurricanes in the uh, tropical basin. Um, just to give you an idea for folks that aren't familiar, uh, I'm in Lafayette, and um, hopefully you can see my cursor here, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, the area that I serve. It's the nine parish, 14 parish area called Acadiana, uh, which is a derivation of the Acadians that moved to the area, and that's why we're called Cajun country. But you can see how uh, we were bookended uh, by Zeta to the east. We had uh, Laura and then Delta just uh, several weeks apart. We were actually impacted by uh, Tropical Storm Beta, which was a depression that came through Senlan. Of course, uh, we had uh, uh, Marco uh, out ahead, which at one point was a hurricane, but came through as uh, when it came through our area, it could have been classified still as a tropical depression. It did produce some gusty. We did have a couple of storms that produced uh, damaging winds. Uh, and then uh, right on the heels of uh, Marco, we, we had Laura. So, um from our aspect uh, and coming off that map uh, that Hal uh, showed a little bit earlier, or no, uh, it was uh, Bill showed a little bit earlier, the uh, number of times that we were in tropical storm watches or warnings was something like uh, close to 30 days. Uh, the number of t- uh, days that we were in the cone was close to 30 days in, our, in, in Louisiana. So it was uh, one heck of a, of a year if you looked at it in total. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, bothered me was a little bit was the lack of uh, coverage uh, post-storms. And, of course, this year was a big year, you know, pandemic-wise, politically-wise. So um, there weren't a whole lot of information and follow-up on these storms. Laura, uh, if you, if you want to learn more about Laura, National Weather Service has put out uh, in Lake Charles, put out a couple of nice summaries on Laura and Delta. Um, 
And one of the things that came out with Laura, a lot of folks said uh, Laura didn't have much of a storm surge. Well, uh, this just came out about a week or two ago, uh, highlighting uh, the surge with Cat 4 Laura. And the forecast prior to the storm was a 15 to 20 foot storm surge. And in the days after the storm, a lot of folks were saying, well, yeah, Lake Charles had a lot of damage and infrastructure damage. In fact, it's the most infrastructure damage I've ever seen to a, a relatively urban area. But here you have that storm surge uh, impacting uh, much of Cameron Parish. Cameron Parish's slogan is gateway to the Gulf. And that gateway was certainly open there. Um, and and you kind of zoom in on uh, Cameron Parish right here. And this is right around the Grand Chenier area. Uh, Creole area where that surge corresponds to greater than 18 feet. And I did see high water marks in my post-storm surveys that uh, were between 18 and 19 feet given waves and the thatch that was up so high. So uh, fortunately, this is not a populated area, but there are several hundred people that uh, either lost homes or camps in that area. And that surge was 8 to 10 feet uh, into uh, Vermilion Parish, which is the parish that sits just south and southwest of Lafayette Parish. And we had high water marks down towards Sippermore Point, this area that juts out into Vermilion Bay, they were in the 8 to 10 foot range. So uh, uh, check out the National Weather Service. Oops, uh, let me, uh, this is the uh, radar uh, from Laura as it came in. And again, uh, this storm, this season in Louisiana will be remembered by Hurricane Laura and then Hurricane Delta that came in just a few weeks afterwards. And, and uh, uh, interestingly enough, both Laura and Delta, um, the worst part of the rain, the worst part of the wind was in the northern eye wall on both of them. Uh, and uh, with Delta in particular, we had the uh, biggest rainfall. Um, this is Lake Charles radar before Lake Charles went down uh, due to wind gusts in the 100 to 130 mile per hour range. You saw those tropical rain bands coming in initially and then the storm and one of the fortunate things we didn't see a bigger storm surge is that Laura was moving at a good pace uh, I ahead of time when I was on the air I was promising a storm surge that was going to be on par with that of Hurricane Rita which it was not and the big difference was Laura was moving at about 15 to 16 miles an hour versus Rita was moving at about 8 miles an hour uh, and that pile dri- drove uh, the storm surge for more than 24 hours we had sustained winds in the 40 to 45 mile an hour range or greater from the south. So really piled in that storm surge. You see there, Laura, making a pretty, pretty rapid move. Uh, this is Hurricane Delta just a few weeks later as we got into uh, September. What's the date? Oh, early October, rather. And again, uh, a storm that made landfall just 12 miles east of uh, Hurricane Laura. So that was astounding. And then, you know, we had the storms down in Central America, Ada and Iota. Uh, They essentially paralleled those paths. And one of the most unfortunate things, I think, with uh, the storm season this year is that the uh, national coverage of uh, the storms down in Central America. Yeah, it's going down there. It's bad, but there was very little information. There continues to be very little information. I did see a a report that was aired on uh, Vice News just a a week or so ago highlighting folks that lost absolutely everything that live in the mountainous areas of Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. Uh, And just uh, two weeks later, they were impacted uh, by iota after ada so uh it's been one heck of a season uh one note i will comment on is that uh, 
we uh, let me stop sharing this. Uh, one of the things I did notice is is the usefulness coming from a local TV aspect uh, on how local television stations uh, really shine in these tropical systems and coverage for the local audiences because without them uh, there would be a lot of uh, a lot of information not getting out there and 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 we look back at and we're still evaluating how we covered the storms during the tropical season but our numbers uh, just uh, looking at who consumed our product product and uh, and who's watching us and on what platform, uh, we found some very interesting stuff. We set records in just the month of October, just citing how many people came to the KETC website, three to four million people. Uh, mainly the weather pages and the news pages on the uh, on the apps. We have a news app and we have a, a, a weather app on the news app. Four million uh, unique users and on the weather app, it was six point one unique users. And then you look to see how long they're on your app. And it averaged four minutes on the KATC weather app. So we're seeing a, a paradigm shift on how people are consuming that information and making sure we're there for that. Uh, but uh, that's what I'm going to remember most about the season, other than the lack of sleep and, and going into every week and what's the crisis of the week to deal with. Uh, but um Uh, We're recovering. Uh, Lake Charles uh, coming back nicely, uh, you know, after doing the survey there and seeing thousands and thousands of telephone uh, power line poles down and the infrastructure damage. It's amazing uh, that uh, they are where they are three or four months later now. Uh, uh, But the recovery is going to take years in many of those communities and especially down along the coast. We don't know who is going to come back after the storms. Yeah, that's uh, uh so the same concerns were voiced after Rita. They were up until Rita Audrey was the 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 uh, memory that was passed down from generation to generation. And Rita, they wondered if people would come back, and I guess they did. Now you kind of wonder. They're, they're relatively close together, Rita and. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I took pictures of of houses that were completely destroyed in Rita. Three years later, I took a picture of the same house that was completely destroyed by um, what was the storm that hit over by you guys, Houston? I right, and then took a picture of the same house post storm after Laura, and I never really had the time to get back there after Delta because we had uh, other storms going on at the time. Uh, I haven't been able to do the damage assessments I would like to do, but uh, uh, give you an idea, Pecan Island, when I moved here in the late 80s, had uh, roughly about a thousand folks that lived in the general area. They had a school that was a full school. It went from uh, grade school up through high school. Well, after Rita closed down, uh, there were several hundred people that lived in around the Pecan Island area prior to Rita. And then I uh, interviewed somebody after Hurricane Ike, who just got wiped out. And he said, well, there, there are about 30 people that are here now. And, and now I don't know how many people are down there. But uh, of folks that have disposable income and can have uh, you know duck hunting camps and that sort of thing, you cannot live down there. And it, it's becoming... Uh, uninhabitable unless you can build 20 feet up. But in Laura, what we saw in this storm, Laura's going to not be known so much for the surge, 
But the uh, tornado like EF2, like wind damage, because you saw a lot of these elevated structures 18, 20 feet up, but the wind still wound up taking out a good part or if not all of the uh, these camps and uh, these uh, uh, these homes. Uh, and in some cases, you know, where they were up 15 or 17 feet, you still saw a two to three foot surge pretty much gutting out those structures anyway, because that surge was 18, 19 feet high, those high water marks. So uh, you have seen a paradigm shift. And I think I presented that a little bit at one of the tropical conferences, how we've seen the population shifting further and further away from the coast and further inland toward Lafayette, Lake Charles. And, and, and then we also had a Hurricane Katrina factor where we saw people moving more out of southeast Louisiana, moving toward Baton Rouge, moving to Lafayette, moving to Houston. So uh, we're seeing a cultural shift here uh, with the storms as well. And with the frequency of the storms and maybe the climate influence, uh, th- those could all be accelerating factors. Wow. We should document that because it's it's very opposite what you see over here. Uh, Hurricane Ike swept the Bolivar Peninsula clean. Uh, it's, there's at least as many people there now. And the value of the property in harm's way is is probably an order of magnitude higher because, as Neil Frank pointed out 40 years ago, the, the rebuilding after each successive storm is is more money, not less in, in, in the property. And as you pointed out, the storm surge has no respect for your wealth. It's going to take it out anyway. Yeah, and you, know, and you look at the damage that you see, storm after storm, and all these Tell, and, you know, it's like, for God's sakes, can we bury, start burying some of our lines, our power lines to mitigate the costs? Of, because if you bury a power line, you, it costs eight or nine times more than a, a, a straight up pole. But uh, in the long run, you're going to be paying less because you're not rebuilding and rebuilding and rebuilding the same in- infrastructure over and over. And there could be other factors. Uh, you know, you go three or four feet down, you're in water here in, in southern Louisiana. So uh, subsurface is not the, the, the best area to keep all your power lines because they're always wet. But uh, there has to be something built more heartily to withstand these storms, because if you drove from Lake Charles all the way down to Cameron, post Laura, post Delta, you didn't see one power lot, one power pole up. They were all falling down. Wow. Yeah. Our neighborhood's all underground. And after Ike, it was first one up. Right. It does make a big difference. Later, we were, we were, uh, my son was back in power over here. So that was good. Thanks, Rob. Uh, Nate, from the the view, from watching a whole bunch of channels there, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of maybe lessons learned or new ideas that have come out of this this season. Uh, uh, You want to share your thoughts? Sure. I I think one of the the things that I'll remember out of this particular season was just how wide-ranging it was. Bill, you showed the map of how many counties were covered. And, you know, our station group owns stations uh, all the way from, you know, Boston and Hartford, all the way down the coast. We have stations in Miami, we have stations in Houston, a station in Houston, and uh, a station in the McAllen, Harlingen market. And all of them saw activity this year. We had hurricane, you know, like conditions and, you know, extended hurricane coverage in New York City, in Boston, in Hartford. And as a matter of fact, some of the uh, heaviest damage from Isaias was in uh, was in our, our uh, in Connecticut and was covered by our Hartford station. So uh, including some tornadoes and, you know, the high winds and everything else. So just how wide ranging this particular season was and just how the fact that it's it's 
everybody's at risk, right? It's not just the coastal markets. It's not just right along the coast and you don't have to be south of a certain latitude. You know, if you're within, you know, a few hundred miles of the coast, you could be, you know, subject to, you know, hurricane-like conditions. Um, We also, you know, again, how quickly the rapid intensification that Hal pointed out, you know, we had a couple of those this year, including one, uh, you know, that moved in with Hannah that moved in along the, uh, you know, deep South Texas, and, uh, you know, that was extending, continuing coverage. And one of the things, you know, all the stations, and Rob, you pointed out, and I'm glad you did, just the value of local TV stations in these situations. But also, I think one benefit of, you know, stations having sister stations, whether they're corporate sister stations or whatever, is the ability to backfill. And we had to actually put that into place at one point with Hannah because the building in McAllen where our station is located, we started taking on water. And even though the station's on, you know, not on the ground floor, uh, we still had, you know, water coming in. And so for a brief period of time, we had to have our San Antonio Telemundo station uh, providing updates, uh, you know, for McAllen viewers. And they were plugged in and, and whatnot. But we also were able to, to not let the people down. We continued to provide coverage for them in spite of the, you know, the water damage that we were taking during the middle of that storm. So, you know, one benefit of having not only the stations in the market, but even having adjacent or neighboring stations in your corporate family or your network family, being able to being ready to go and to step up and stand in because even though you may be taking on water, you still have to cover the storm. You still have to keep your viewers safe. That's interesting. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the season, there was a lot of uh, uh, concerns about the combined effects of uh, uh, staying safe from the COVID pandemic and dealing with hurricanes. Well, we may have been, uh, gotten somewhat fortunate in that uh, the big metropolitan areas that would evacuate uh, a million or more people didn't uh, have to do so this year. Uh, does, uh, uh, any of you have any experience with uh, or ideas on how that was coped with on the stations when the impactful storms were going on? From our standpoint, we had we were fairly aggressive early on in March and April in in really trying to get people set up to be able to work from home to do weather, whether it was a portable chroma key or a webcam, and then taking control of graphics, you know, at the TV station and being able to do that and really trying to minimize aggressively how many people we had in the building and things that I, you know. 20 years ago when I got into the business, things that I thought would never have been possible. The idea that you could produce an entire newscast, a professional, well-lit, sounds good, rolling video, the whole bit, do an entire newscast without a single person in the production chain actually physically at the TV station, I'd have told you you were nuts. And yet we had a lot of stations across the country doing that, and not just our group, but you know, a lot of stations were doing those kinds of things um, this year to help keep are people safe to minimize, you know, the impact in the event that somebody did test positive or had to quarantine because they had to come in, they came in contact with somebody else that actually, I think really helped us so that when we did have to bring people back, number one, we thought through a couple of steps of backups um, in the event that the stations weren't, you know, accessible for one reason or another, but we also had minimized the amount of contact and whatnot. And so when we were bringing people back in, they weren't fully quarantined because they were, you know, still to go to the grocery store and do other things. But at the same time, it's not like you've had this whole group of, you know, room full of 100, 200 people who've been working together, sort of co-bubbling the entire time. 
you brought them in, we got the job done, and then we you know, tried to pull people back you know, as quickly and as aggressively as we could. We had to do that a couple of times in our Miami stations. Uh, we had people working from home largely, and then you know whenever there's a tropical threat, we bring people back in. Brief period of time, we'd minimize you know in the run up minimize the amount of time people spent in the studio. So in a number of cases, we'd have the Mets produce everything from home, do everything at the station you know, at home that they could. And then an hour before newscast time, drive to the TV station, go straight to the weather office, don't interact with anybody. The break rooms are shut down, all that kind of stuff. Um, do the newscast saying at least six feet away from everybody. And then as soon as the newscast is over, get in the car and go back home. And then maybe do that even twice in a day if you've got an early evening and then a late evening, you know, type newscast block to really try and minimize the exposure. And I think that was largely successful. And even in cases where we've had some positive cases in some of our newsrooms, it's largely been they got it somewhere else. They haven't been in the building. And so there's no quarantining that, that we need to do. And if they are health, if they're feel, if they feel well enough, you know, some some people that have COVID are asymptomatic. They feel fine. They can continue to work if they've got, you know, the setup and everything at home. They can keep working and, you know, continue to contribute in the way that they want to without having to burn time off and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, if they are symptomatic, then, you know, stay home, you know, take it easy, rest, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we've all, I think, had those instances, whether it's allergies or a cold or something where you feel fine, but you sound terrible and nobody really wants to be around you, but you could still do your job. Well, we now have the ability to do that. To me, it sounds, I've, I've heard uh, very similar comments from uh, Tim and Alex on how they operate and other people I know in the, the business. I think this is a great success story that needs some, some uh, documentation because it ain't the last time we're going to have something like this. No, and, and we look at it as, as, you know, this a lot of this pandemic, for better or for worse, I mean, part of it has been a forced experiment. You know, how... How, how much of the television infrastructure do we really need to have in the building? You know, how many people really need to come to work every day in order to be successful and to, you know, personally, professionally, and to drive the station goals and the business goals and that sort of thing. And that's, it's causing us to really rethink a lot of things uh, in terms of, you know, how we build buildings and, and what we build for. And, you know, I think of you know, sales departments, for example, you know, largely salespeople are out making sales calls. Do you need an office? Uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a, 24 7 365 office space that's you know, climate controlled you know year round do we really need all of that or do we need more sort of hoteling space and some some meeting space but then give folks a you know a cell phone and a laptop and a maybe a company car or something and let them you know go out and uh, you know sell and actually be out and you know interacting with the community reporters are the same way a lot of reporters you know might not even come into the building at all. They call into the morning meeting you know, via Zoom or a phone call before, you know, meet up with a photographer, shoot a story, and then, you know, they're driving to and from stories separately. So we're, again, minimizing contact, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that even in the production chain, we're starting to realize that you know, some of this stuff we can do. And maybe it's not a, you know, maybe we're not going to do it all the time. We're not going to have, you know, John Morales doing weather from his backyard, you know, all the time going forward. But there may be opportunities for us to do that in the event that, you know, I, it's a tool in the toolbox. And, and I think we'll uh, get past the pandemic in the aftertimes, as the state climatologist here in North Carolina called it on Twitter the other day. Uh, we'll have some time to sort of sit down and see, well, where does this fit? What, how, what's the appropriate time to use this tool going forward once the pandemic is passed and we're not sort of uh, having to quarantine so much? 
I imagine these stations have had to put their IT security people on medication. I mean, <laughs> last time I broached doing operational work from home, it, the, the response was something like, you'll have to pry my cold, dead fingers off the you know, keyboard to do that. And yep. I haven't heard of any instances where, where a, a, a station or an operational facility in the weather service, for example, have been uh, adversely hacked by some uh, uh, malcontent yeah. online. Yeah, we've been we've been fortunate. Obviously, a lot of planning going into that. Um, you know, we have enough. At least in our company, we have enough people working remotely that some of that infrastructure was there, and obviously had to be expanded. You know, by an order of magnitude or two, you know, early on to account for it. But there was a framework that had sort of been put in place by you know a number of remote employees, and so uh, I think going forward. You know how much of that will stay in place. I think you know, will be determined largely by how many people, you know, return to working in the building five days a week, or whether we, you know, do some sort of splitting where there's you know folks working from. Home. And you know, admittedly, being the ability the ability to work from home is in somewhat a, a kind of a privilege, right? You know, if I've got you know four kids and nobody's in school because the schools are closed down, then that's a lot harder. And physically going to an office may be more productive for me and for the company. Um, but for folks who you know, are able to do that and pull that off. It, it, uh, you know, certainly works. Yeah. I, uh, I would think the social aspects would, will be the driver on that. I think uh, a lot of people just the, the idea of being holed up in their house all the time, not interacting <laughs> with fellow professionals personally, mm-hmm. not something they look forward to. So I have a feeling we're going to bounce back more to the in-person, but who knows? We'll see there. Yeah. There's I think some- we will. I, I don't think it'll be as far. We won't go all the way back, but I think it, you know, I think you're right that a lot of folks that are, you know, have to work from home now would prefer to work in the office for one reason or the other. It may be that the tools that they have are just easier to use. I mean, you know, can you build TV graphics over a team viewer or splash top or whatever? Yes. Is it as good as sitting in front of the computer? No. <laughs> so, Yeah. It's amazing. I'm going to shift gears on you here. A couple of weeks ago, where was a, we were all bandying about the whether they're going to retire the the iota and ada which were such destructive storms and and uh, the just a little bit uh, the uh, that was that was done ad hoc in the 2005 season among the uh, in the uh, WMO uh, region for hurricane committee that covers the western atlantic in there uh, as a as a stopgap to do that and it never came up again. We had a few 19 or 17 or 19 named storm seasons while I was there, but the issue never came up at any of our meetings there. I have a feeling they'll be addressing it this year. Well, Nate put out a a, a bit of a proposal there. Uh, 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 you want to tell us about what you were thinking about and any further thoughts you've had since you did that? I can't remember if this was a staring at the ceiling at two in the morning or cuddling with a crying kid at four in the morning or uh, uh, one of those shower ideas, but, you know, just one of those moments where you've got some time to sort of think. And, you know, I, based on the fact that I think we're going to see more seasons like this, not fewer. I mean, we you know, went from the fifties all the way until, you know, the previous decade didn't have any. And in the last 16 years, we've had two where we've had to dip into the Greek alphabet. And this year, you know, clearly we have a couple of storms that I think are going to be retired. And the question was, well, can you retire a Greek letter name storm? And the answer was, well, we'll, 
we'll ring of honor it. We won't retire it, but we'll put the name up there with the year. Sort of like that that uh, that sports team that is your team's rival that they have so many players that are just so good. If we retired all of their numbers, we'd run out of numbers. So we'll just honor them. It just seemed kind of unsatisfying, right? It, it's an answer, but it didn't really sort of scratch the itch. And so the idea was, well, is there a way to get around that? And, and I think the way to get around it is to find a way to stop using the Greek, Greek alphabet entirely. We're the only basin that does anything like this, uh, where if you run out of names, you, you know, run into this special list that's not another list of names with the Greek alphabet. Uh, I think it might be a holdover, you know, sort, maybe a holdover from when it was a phonetic alphabet, you know, back in the day. And alpha is the first one uh, of both of those lists. And the long and short of it is let's just change the way how we name storms in the Atlantic to mirror what happens in a number of other basins, including the, the central North Pacific, western North Pacific, and some of the South Pacific basins. And that is you'd still have your six lists. You would still run through. But at the end of a year, you would just stop. And then at the beginning of the next year, instead of resetting to the top of the next list, you would just pick back up from where you were before. A couple of real great benefits out of this. Number one, there's no more Greek alphabet. There's no more arguing, do we use the college fraternity pronunciations or the actual, you know, I speak Greek natively and that's not how you say beta. Um, you know, do we use that pronunciation? That's a thing. Um, you'll never run out of names because you'll just keep going through it. If you get to the bottom of the list in the middle of the season, you'll just jump to the top of the next list and go forward. Um, and it also helps, I think, to load balance the names. There's a, you know, every season has an A storm. Most seasons don't have a W storm. But if we start sort of churning through the list and we'll start using some of those, the latter half of the the list a little bit more, I don't know that that's a huge benefit, but at least you're not having to constantly come up with, you know, we retired the A storm again or we retired the F storm again. Here in North Carolina, it's always the F storms that seem to get us. We've, you know, we've caused about half of those to be retired over the course of the last 20 years or 30 years. So, you know, we start to use more of the lit, more of the list down at the bottom. So it's not as much of a struggle to come up with names. If you retire it, it'll be equally likely that it's a W storm that's retired than an A storm. The only negative that I've heard, other than just the procedural piece of getting this push through and getting everybody to sign on, which is going to be a challenge whenever you make any kind of change, the only actual negative that I've heard um, that, that I think carries any sort of weight is well, you won't immediately know, based on the name of the storm, how deep into the list you are. Because right now, when you reset, if it's an F storm, then you know it's the sixth storm of the season, the sixth name storm of the season doesn't tell you how many unnamed tropical depressions, you know, were there before, for example, but it gives you a sense of just how busy the season was. And my response to that is pretty simple. It is if it's a busy season or if it's an unusually unbusy season, there will be no shortage of people like me, Rob and Tim and Alex to tell you <laughs> that it's been a busy season or not. So there's no, I don't know that that's that we lose anything there. Yeah. Uh, and I think the benefits of, you know, we don't have this special list. Plus, it's a system that is used in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. Other parts of the world already use, do exactly this. Uh, the Central North Pacific has four lists and they rotate through. And they're actually shorter lists, too. And they rotate through that list over time. We already do it. We already know how to do it. So the mechanics are pretty easy. It's just deciding we're done with the Greek letter alphabet. 
That way we can retire the storms that we needed to retire from this season, and then we move on. And if you have to retire a name storm in the future, you just replace it with another name with that letter, and you move on. Yeah, I see some advantage to that. Or we were running out of I names. I usually show big, big seasons, big storms come in the September. It's about when you're hitting the I, and there are not that many I names. And you know, I only half jokingly suggested uh, falling back to comic characters like Hager the Horrible as a backup storm. <laughs> or Dilbert. That was my favorite one. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that didn't get any traction. Can we have Hurricane Pointy Haired Boss? That would be and just retire yeah, that one. Right? No, right. The uh, the one that 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 issue you brought up, I don't. It was, it's like so what? Uh, perhaps yeah. other than the FEMA folks that are get stretched thin, you know, the people that are having to respond globally to something like this. There's mm-hmm. for the individual citizen. It, hell, we had Alicia with four storms. That was a big beer here in Houston. So it doesn't really matter. To me, whether it's in a busy or, or non-busy season, the, uh, it's a change. I think, I think that's, that's your hardest thing you'll be pushing against is there'll be a lot of people that don't want to change the system on the committee. Yeah. Perhaps. But I think it does, you know, it, it gets us deeper into the list. You know, it uses some of those additional names at the bottom. And like you said, the retirements over time, just from a, you know, load balancing standpoint and from, you know, random, you know, you're going to – spread the load out a little bit so that you're going to retire more names deeper in the list and not have to come up with more I names or more F names as we look, uh, you know, into the future. And I think, you know, too, you know, I think we're going to see more seasons like this. I mentioned at the beginning that we've seen two of these in the last 16 years. And I don't know that that, I don't buy into this idea that that's, well, the hurricane center is just inflating the number of storms. You know, I think our technology is better, you know, back in the fifties would, one satellite, that was it, you know, or in the 60s, we had one satellite that we launched, that was it. Now we've got dozens, some of them at high orbit, some of them at low orbit. We're seeing more of the Atlantic. We are seeing it in more detail. And I think the questions now, the Hurricane Center uh, is looking at this and saying, I can, I can look at this definitively and tell you that it is a tropical cyclone based on the Borak technique, whatever, just because the raw data we're using is better. And so we're just seeing with more clarity. And I think we're going to see, we're going to name more storms, even though we may have the exact same number of storms, although that's not what the literature says we're going to have with climate change. We're going to see more storms and we're going to see the ones, perhaps ones that we might, they might have, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't have the data to support it. My heart of hearts, it probably is, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, we're not going to push it. Now we have the data to actually name it, say that's what it is because we can identify it with scientific certainty. So I think we're going to have this problem more in the future rather than less. Uh, hopefully we don't have it again next year. But Yeah, it's, it, that will remain to be seen in the future, I guess, uh, whether this is a, uh, a change signal or whether it's a function of the, what you just described and the fact that we're in a, uh, a, an up cycle on the Atlantic mm-hmm. the Arnold Oscillation. So, uh, hmm. Well, yeah. I passed your suggestion on. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think the handwriting's on the wall with that. Just because, as Nate was talking about, we're seeing a lot of these subtropical storms getting upgraded earlier in the year. We have four or five, six of them that don't use much ACE points accumulated cyclone 
energy points, but uh, we're almost certainly going to have four or five storms every year that are, you know, we wouldn't have classified 10 or 15 years ago with our remote sensing technology. So we're already deep diving into each list, five, five names every year. So it would only make sense. And maybe only from a historical standpoint that you won't be able to recall that Hurricane I was the first storm of the 2022 season or whatever. Uh, but uh, for consistency's sake, I, I think it's it's almost uh, endemic on us to do that based on the way we observe storms now. It's very different than what it was just 20 years ago. Hmm. Tim, what you got? You're on mute. You're on mute, Tim. It's been, a, it's been a fascinating discussion, and and it's been fun being just a fly on the wall listening to you guys. It's been great, um, and and I think you know, Bill, if you've got any pull, I think let's see. There's been a hurricane, Alex. There's been a Bill. Uh, there's, has there been a Hal yet? Has there been a Hal? Have we had that? Uh, Nate, I know there's been a Nate, but there's not been a Timothy yet. So, Bill, if you've got any pull with the, uh, with the Hurricane <laughs> Center, uh, get that T name. <laughs> so, so I can have one of mine, too. Um, just looking through the comments, a lot of great comments. Today. A lot of folks are watching. A lot of our regulars are watching today. Casper's been here today. Marcel's been here. Mark, uh, Rick's watching. Also, uh, our friend Nick Morganelli watching from uh, up in, well, this is Gene. I assume it's Nick watching from New England. So we appreciate that. Casper had a question. Let's just go back a little bit, back to what we were talking about initially, about uh, the slow-moving storms and how they're, you know, how much there have been uh, a number of those recently. And talked about Imelda being an example of the catastrophic flooding coming from the slow-moving storms. I don't know if, uh, again, go back to where we started 40 minutes ago. Uh, I don't know if Hal or, or anybody wants to comment on that a little bit, just that Imelda was one of those. Well, Imelda, Imelda was a classic example of uh, it doesn't take a, a big, powerful storm to cause a big flood. If it, the, the key ingredient of any of these tropical things is how slow is it moving. And the second is how much moisture is it bringing in with it. So Imelda was a great overachiever. It was like Claudette back in uh, 79, except Claudette had existed a little longer. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, – Imelda was a very slow-moving tropical storm in southeast Texas, dumping over 40 inches of rain really west of Beaumont. Port Arthur, but again, surprising a lot of people. If you do a web search, there's a little piece I did with PBS NewsHour two years ago. It's called How a Warming World May Have Called Caused Hurricane Florence to Stall. And we, we really look at this idea of slower moving storms and how, you know, the whole purpose of, of weather is to move energy and heat from the tropics to the, the poles. And it does appear that the as the world is warming, that the poles are warming faster than the than the tropics. And so we may be slowing down some of the circulation and some of this flow of energy and things like that from the, from the tropics to the Arctic. And that may be slowing down some of the circulation. Some of the models suggest that, and it does appear like we're seeing a lot of these stalled out storms at landfall in the past several years. I appreciate how also your influence, you talk about the, the rapid intensification because of the warmer Gulf. I think that's fascinating as well. I think there's a lot to learn in that. Go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, going back to that 2016 event here in South Louisiana, where it was an unnamed system, it was maybe barely a depression for a short period of time. But uh, you're seeing these just, it doesn't even have to have a name. 
uh, for these slow moving tropical disturbances to do billions of dollars worth of damage. And, and it, yeah, it does seem like we're seeing that trend of slowing down of uh, these storms at uh, Gulf latitude. But it also, as Hal was alluding to, with the warming further to the north, I think we're going to see uh, more frequency of these uh, higher latitude storms making larger impacts much more frequently. Uh, you know, your Superstorm Sandys, your your Isaias, you know, your storms uh, having more tropical uh, juice in them at a higher latitude. So uh, we're spreading the wealth around, but uh, things are moving a lot more slowly at this latitude. And I, I certainly will bear witness to that over the 30 plus years I've been doing weather down here on the Gulf Coast. Very good. Very good. Um, any final comments? Let's go just down down the list uh, and see if anybody's got any final comments to wrap up this uh, 2020 hurricane season. Here we are again, nine days post most active season on record. And Rob, you're still big on my screen. So let me start with you. Just any, any final thoughts to wrap up the season? Well, I just want to thank you guys for doing what you did during the course of this pandemic. Uh, you know, normally we get together in April and we visit a little before, a little bit after, and we see each other throughout the year, uh, maybe remotely on a couple of these, uh, uh, you know, national uh, uh, broadcasts that you've been doing. But uh, you guys really have uh, adapted to the situation. And uh, uh, I don't want to I've gotten more out of it uh, this year than out of a typical tropical conference. Uh, it's much better. About the same. <laughs> it's much better to visit in person and see you guys uh, and gals and everybody in the uh, tropical meteorological enterprise. But just want to thank you for going uh, the extra mile uh, for these uh, weekly uh, updates throughout the entire tropical season. It's really been, uh, I think it's been great, not only for us as meteorologists and people in the weather enterprise, but also, having the general public see what we do, what we talk about, and have that go out onto social media. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, if we're informing the public in different aspects of what we do, even the behind the scenes, behind the Wizard of Oz wall, I think that uh, elevates everybody's understanding of what we do in the meteorological enterprise and dealing with these tropical systems and these tropical seasons. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate that. You know, some of these programs are a lot more in the weeds than others, but uh, all of them, you know, great content for, for us. And we hope great, great content for everybody who's been watching today and all the people who are watching as we speak. Al, you've been with us a number of times this, this, this season. I think we made a new friend and we appreciate having you here. What are your thoughts as we wrap up this year? Well, I'd like to echo what Rob said. You guys have done an amazing job this year, just keeping everybody engaged and interactive. You know, one of the things that really blindsided me when we talked about the upcoming tropical season in April all I could see were negatives with a hyperactive hurricane season and a pandemic. Tourism is king on the Gulf Coast communities. They were getting hit really hard economically by the pandemic, and we thought a hyperactive hurricane season, all I could see were negatives. And there were a lot of stressors. It was a very difficult season for many people. But one of the positives, I know here in Galveston during Hurricane Laura, we were under mandatory evacuation. I talked to so many people that said, hey, I evacuated, but I was able to work remotely. Or my kids, uh, it was when school was starting up. I know people that evacuated and said, yeah, my kids actually didn't miss school because our school is now remote. Um, just this idea that we're doing so much remotely now and how that really softened the blow, I think, of an evacuation. I never saw that coming. And I thought that was something really interesting this season. We, as a society, were better connected technologically. And I think that in some ways could help. So it, it was a rough season, but uh, some, some interesting things that we didn't see or, or think about uh, before the season started. 
a lot of a lot of silver lining in this cloud that was the 2020 hurricane season. Thanks, Nate. Uh, Hal. Appreciate that. Uh, good insight. And Nate, um, again, you've been watching from kind of a different perspective, and, and we appreciate you being with us today. What are your thoughts as we wrap this up? I echo, you know, what Rob and Halbo said. I think the this format, you know, we prefer to be in person. I think in a person, you know, the the hallway conversations and lunchtime conversations and dinner time conversations is where a lot of the work of conferences happens. But the sharing of the information is still a critical piece of it as well. And to be able to keep that going um, and really to open it up to a lot larger audience of people, we can't you know, TV stations couldn't bring everybody, you know, from the department to, uh, you know, to any given conference. And a lot of times the best solution is to spread the love around and one person goes here. But when we share content like this, it, it makes it more accessible and more open to a lot of people. And I think, Rob, to your point about people, the general public being able to, to look in, transparency is uh, something we, we need a lot of in our industry and in a lot of industries. And I think when we're transparent about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, it tends to keep the uh, the questions about, well, why aren't we doing this or why aren't we doing that? When we're you know, sort of being transparent about those sorts of things, uh, it tends to put everybody at ease. People don't feel like there's anything that's missing and then their minds don't go into overdrive about filling that information gap when we're filling that information and, and you know, to use the political term, you know, setting the message or controlling the message. We're just putting information out, being transparent. That tends to uh, to be a big help. But uh, then my bottom line is I just want to retire this year and move on to next year. I'm naturally an optimistic person. Um, you know, I, hopefully the vaccines will take and, and, you know, we can let science do science moving forward into 2021 and uh, hopefully get back to, you know, a normal and, and how, to your point, maybe a, a better normal going forward than what we left behind pre-pandemic. Great thoughts. Thank you, Nate. Bill, how about you? What are you thinking as we as we close this out? Well, so, yeah, looking back over the, the events of the year, heck, in the, the leading up to April 1st, uh, if someone said the word Zoom, I'd say, yeah, that's something my grandson says as he's going down the driveway in his little car. <laughs> uh, I didn't even know what Zoom was when we started this. And uh, I want to take this opportunity to, to thank Alex and, and you, Tim, for uh allowing me to be part of this great uh, experiment we've been doing this year. It's been great. Well, Bill, your insight from day one has been has been just spot on, and we appreciate that. We're honored to have you as part of the program from the beginning. I'm going to uh, uh, make a quick call here uh, to our number one fan who uh, just asked a question about looking for some uh, uh, some NTWC swag, some NC- NTWC attire. Casper, you've been with us almost every week, and so when we're done, I want to private message your address, and we're going to send you an NTWC mask for being such a loyal fan, so we appreciate that. Um, Hal, I think you have yours. Rob, you have yours, and Nate, yours will be in the mail as well. Uh, we'll get them to you, and Bill, I think you got two or three of those masks by now. So I want to thank our sponsors, USAA. Uh, Once again, they'll be with us in 2021. We appreciate USAA for all that you are doing for the National Tropical Weather Conference, the Storm Science Network, and everything else we do. Plylocks, Hurricane Clips. Um, Again, I I assume they had a really good year this year (laughs) because people needed those clips desperately. And the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, I'm still looking out the window. I have not heard the windows rumble yet, so I'm assuming SpaceX has not launched yet. Hopefully they will sometime today. There's a great website. You can watch them, Lab Padre, on YouTube if you'd like to see it. Lab Padre, you want to see what SpaceX is doing here on South Padre Island. That's it for me. Alex, final thoughts from you back at headquarters in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, 
South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com.